everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Gin and Beer. I am your host, Meg, and this week I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Louis Fernandez. Hi, Louis. Welcome to the show. Hi there, Meg. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, thank you for being here. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. So Louis is a friend that I have found on Instagram, like a lot of the guests on the show. Instagram happens to be like a great place to, to meet guests for the show. It's bringing Such it in tool. for me. Yeah, it's great. Um, the, the, <laughs> the cocktails community on Instagram is actually amazing. Um, people are just so nice. I wasn't really expecting that. You, you don't usually associate social media with people being nice, <laughs> um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but everyone's been been so lovely. But yeah, so Louie and I met on um, Instagram and Louie, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and um, and how you got into drinks making. Yeah, so uh, I own my own restaurant and bar uh, with my family. It's uh, a Brazilian steakhouse focused kind of cocktail bar. Uh, Our idea was to always make like a a modern version of a Brazilian restaurant. And I've been a bartender for at this point, almost seven years. And I've kind of done, I've also worked in almost every position in a restaurant from busboy to host to, and you name it, bar manager, everything. So uh, I always really wanted to, I always worked in really awesome places that I always kept thinking to myself, what if I did, what if I made a restaurant that was more indicative and reflective of who I am as a person and kind of uh, encompass some of the best parts about my culture and who I am and, but doing so through the lens of cocktail making and the food. Um, And I started making cocktails uh, as a way to just pay for college. And then eventually it became kind of this weird obsession and love. I started working at this higher end cocktail bar where we started to really take uh, cocktail making incredibly seriously. I got trained by a guy who was like the bar manager of one of the most um, famous and prestigious bars on the East Coast called Eastern uh, Eastern Standard. Uh, it's right in Boston, just outside of Fenway Park. And it's uh, it used to be like this... Uh, beacon of cocktail making here on the east coast and for a really long time it was incredibly incredibly famous and so uh the gentleman kevin who used to run the cocktail program there was actually hired to train me and some other of my uh co-workers at this last bar i worked at and from then on i i really fell in love with it and started to dive into the theories of of cocktail making and just really getting to to learn about the different spirits the history and i've always been a big history guy and so for me, once you realize that each individual spirit has a story that's much more uh, culturally relevant and historically relevant, then just it tastes good. You know, like if you you learn the history of rum and how it was directly tied to uh, slavery and how it was uh, a big uh, just so many different aspects of, of rum can be traced back through historical things that impacted everyday life and living. And even if you go further back, every culture has its own um, spirit and its own drinking cultures and customs. And uh, overall, what I've always loved about the food and beverage and drinking kind of industries and cultures is that it's always been meant to bring people together through ritual, you know? And so that is my long-winded rant of an answer of how I got into all of this. Um, but yeah, and so today I actually have my own YouTube channel talking about different cocktails. Uh, I talk about bartending tips and tricks, my favorite spirits, and I try to focus heavily on South American spirits because I am Brazilian. I was born in Brazil and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was four. Uh, and throughout my entire time uh, as a bartender, there was never really a focus on South American spirits. I'm not really sure if that was because 
of availability or if it was just it's just not common to use because they weren't really used in classic American cocktail recipes. So when we opened our bar here, my biggest focus was always to really focus on things from South America. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And the, you know, the explanation that you gave for how you got into drinks, that's kind of the whole ethos behind gin and beer as well. Um, you know, obviously I love drinks and I love drinking, but the idea behind it was more just like exactly what you said, how um, it's so deeply intertwined with culture and history. And when you get people talking about it, you can really dive into that. So yeah, I totally, totally agree with your passion there. And that's, um, I think it's, I think it's great that you've, you know, kind of brought that Brazilian culture and flair into your own restaurant. Um, it's, you know, it's great to, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think there is there is so much cool history and and so many cool drinks that are from South America that yeah I think have recently started to get more popular but um it's great that you're able to use your YouTube channel to shine more light on that I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah and that was always kind of the 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 idea right because there's a there's a lot of fantastic YouTube channels out there for you to learn about pretty much any spirit you want as long as it's from North America or it's more well-known, mm-hmm. you know, and cocktail recipes, they cover, there's rest, there's, there's bar, uh, YouTubers out there that have cop that have covered all of the basics and all of the best ones. And so one of the things that I saw and both not just from the content standpoint, but also from a, just like a, a everyday business standpoint, no one was really even talking about any of the, of the South American spirits. So some of the first videos I did was covering things like what is cachaça, what is pisco, um, and cocktails that all stem from that because they, they have a place in the cocktail conversation. It's just that not enough people know about it. So I'm not sitting here saying I'm an expert, but if I'm able to impart just a little bit of knowledge onto someone and that sparks an interest and more people get to see it and know about it, it makes me happier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's fantastic. So with that being said, what is the drink that you have chosen to discuss on today's episode? So I chose the caipirinha because there is nothing more iconic for me as a person uh, than the traditional caipirinha. And for anybody who doesn't know, a caipirinha is the national cocktail of Brazil. It is also, by some accounts, uh, in the top 10 most popular cocktails in the world at this point. Um, and it's funny because a lot of people are either scared of it because they can't pronounce it or they don't know what it is. And then when you find out that the main ingredient in it is cachaça, which is another impossible to pronounce uh, word, people tend to stick uh, shy away from it. Yeah, no, I am... Um... I can definitely see how that might be a challenge for some people, but it is one of my favorite drinks. I absolutely love it. I can't remember the first time I ever had one, but it was kind of a game changer for me because it's just, it's just so many things I love. Like I'm, a, I'm, I love lime. I love sugar. So it's just kind of, it's all good things. <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a good cocktail. It's, um, it's one of those that's really refreshing and it's not uh, overly complex. So um, there's only three ingredients. It's cachaça, lime, and sugar. So that isn't, uh, super overpowering. Like you can have a couple and not feel how you won't get an, like annoyed with it. You're going to want to keep mm-hmm. drinking them as long as, you know, drinking responsibly, throwing it, mixing in a water here and there. But if you're having a good day on the beach, there's very few cocktails that I think are better. Um, I compare it to that same level of like crispness and freshness that people get from like a well-made margarita. Mm-hmm. That to me is very similar to like a well-made caipirinha in terms of like drinkability and in terms of just like being able to enjoy it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, so tell me a bit about cachaça. Cas- cas- <laughs> 
<laughs> it's one of those situations where I had I was saying it correctly in my head and then my mouth just completely tripped over itself. Um, just because I've had many a uh, a uh, Kuiperina, but I don't know much about the the spirit itself, like different variations or really the history of it. Um, it's one of those spirits that I just I guess I haven't really delved into that much, apart from ordering Kuiperinas in in restaurants and stuff. Yeah. So uh, the cachaça is. It's a uh, spirit made from distilled raw sugarcane juice. So a long time in the U.S., anytime you see a bottle of cachaça, it was usually mislabeled as like Brazilian rum. Mm-hmm. And the reason that is, is that it, it's, it was an easier way to sell it. It was an easier way to sell it to the public. People would kind of get it. But the issue that I found with that is that cachaça and rum, they taste very, very different. Mm-hmm. And they come from two distinct uh, differences. I like to say that they are cousins uh, because they kind of come from the same process. So um, where Cachaça came from is that in uh, the 1500s, the Portuguese went to colonize South America or went to colonize Brazil. And with them, they brought sugarcane. And so Brazil became a huge sugarcane plantation grower and exporter. It was their biggest export for, uh, I think, like 200, 300 years. And so in that time, when you make uh, sugar, you basically press sugarcane and then you take that liquid, which is the raw sugarcane juice, and then it goes through this whole process of making that nice, fine, refined white sugar that we see everywhere. But at the same time, in that process, you also create something called molasses, which is like a byproduct of making sugar. So um, what they then discovered was that if you were to just, instead of processing the raw sugar cane juice to make sugar, and instead you fermented it and then distilled it, you would have this uh, amazing spirit known as cachaça. Or uh, if you're, for, it's actually... There are other versions that are very similar to cachaça. Of it's like rum agricole. Mm-hmm. So you have like uh, Haiti makes some that's pretty popular. Martinique has some. Uh, some of the other uh, Caribbean nations also make it. Um, but cachaça can only be labeled cachaça if it's made in Brazil because there's a couple of extra steps. Okay. Uh, it's like if it needs to get like uh, it needs to be between 38% and 42% alcohol. It needs to, there's a couple of other small little stipulations that I won't bore people with, but, um, basically then, um, with molasses being a byproduct in the Caribbean, they realized that they had all of this, essentially what they considered to be garbage because they were like, what what do we do with molasses? Mm -hmm. You know, people were making so much sugar uh, and it was one of the biggest drivers of the slave trade in the 15, 16 and 1700s that they just had a ton of this molasses lying around. And so that's when people then went and made rum Mm -hmm. out of molasses. And so they would then ferment the molasses, distill it, and that's how you would get rum. Um, So they have a shared kind of origin, but they are very distinct in and of themselves. They are two distinct spirits. They may have similar characteristics-ish, but they're really not the same. So um, that kind of draws the distinction between cachaça and rum. Uh, and so one of the... Uh, and the thing about cachaça is that it's actually older than rum. It started being produced... It's Latin America's oldest uh, distilled spirit. Mm-hmm. And so it was made... Um, Essentially, people consider it to be like the the first new world spirit Mm -hmm. as well. So when the Europeans kind of came over to South America and North America, eventually they kind of ran out of European spirits and wine to drink. And so they were like, well, you know, we have these distillation processes that we know how to. And so they were the ones who initially started to produce cachaça because they were like, well, we ran out of wine, ran out of great spirits, and we have this uh, fresh sugarcane juice. Why don't we try to make this cachaça thing? And so... 
uh, originally cachaça was uh, made, but it, it was seen as like a lesser spirit. It was always seen as kind of like uh, for poor people or for, you know, we'll only drink it if we don't have wine or if the shipment hasn't come in from Europe. Mm-hmm. And then that unfortunately kept its stigma for hundreds of years uh, because it then became very closely related and attached to slavery in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, it became like the slaves drink and it was uh, only what the slaves, they were the only thing that they were have access to in terms of alcohol was, you know, really cheap and poorly made cachaça. And then it kind of went on and became its uh, uh, like it became kind of currency for slaves. They're able to trade it amongst themselves. And it, had, it has that kind of dark history attached to it. Um, and so where the caipirinha kind of comes in. Uh, oh, sorry. Before we get into that, I do want to describe kind of what it tastes like. It's mm-hmm. basically like a um, it's grassy. It's vegetal. Uh, a cachaça, that is. It's, mm-hmm. gra- it's grassy. It's vegetal. It's a little crisp if made well. Um, and it's it's not dissimilar to like a really well-made Blanco tequila. Mm-hmm. Um, they have that earthy kind of quality to it, that grassiness, the, the, the vegetalness, if you will. Um, and then the really cool thing about cachaça is that there's 30 different kinds of woods that can be used to age it, which is uh, more than any spirit in the entire world. And these, a lot of these are indigenous to Brazil. Um, and unfortunately some of them are going extinct. So there's a lot of, you know, there's some really awesome versions of cachaça mm-hmm. out there, but, um, That's as really it relates, yeah, it's, uh, you know, mo- most parts of the world, they age things in just Oak, you know, like mm-hmm. bourbon barrels or there, Oak is very easy to work with. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Brazil, because of the Amazon and the Atlantic rainforest, they had all of these different kinds of trees and all these different indigenous kinds of woods, which they throughout the last 500 years have used it to age cachaça in one way, shape or another. Um, unfortunately, that also has contributed to deforestation in Brazil as mm-hmm. well, uh, which is awful. Um, but there are some pretty cool cachaça makers out there trying to rectify that and play their part. Um, that's before really I keep interesting. Going on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, that's what we're here for. Is I'm all, I'm all for the queen of tangents. No, it's it's really interesting, and I, I thought I think it was interesting that you said that you think of it as kind of a, a cousin to rum agricole because um, that the the grassiness that you described i would associate that with rum agricole so it makes sense that they're kind of related but yeah and that was what i was going to ask you is does it need to be um made in brazil which you answered so that's very interesting yes so uh, again it it became this it has to be like i said between uh it needs to come off the still and bottled between 38 and 42 percent um, which I, I will say I would love to find out why, because as a bartender, I genuinely, I like higher proof spirits. Mm-hmm. It kind of, it tends to provide a better body in cocktails. Um, so I, I keep having this, this recurring thought over the last couple of months of like, well, what if you had one that was like 50%, like mm-hmm. why is, why can't that still be a cachaça? So that's something I'm going to try to figure out because, um, I have a couple of spirits that I love using in cocktails that are like 50%, which you know, stand up better, but yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thing. No, that is, um, that is really interesting. And so is there, I, I mean, like, are there loads and loads and loads of different brands of cachaça? <laughs> Honestly, I will get it eventually by the time we're done recording. Oh, it's okay. Are there, are, <laughs> are there, are there loads of different brands of cachaça in Brazil? Um, like, is it, or are there ones that stand out in particular that if you, if you go to most bars in Brazil, that's what they're going to use to make your caprina? So here's where things get kind of crazy. And I, um, I actually wrote some stuff down for this, for this specific uh, part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, l- per year, 
Brazil as a whole produces one point one and a half billion with a B liters of cachaça per year. For comparison's sake, I looked up uh, the amount of bourbon that gets produced a year in America. Um, I figured it would be an apt comparison because bourbon can only be made in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Cachaça can only be made in Brazil. They tend to both get aged. I understand that cachaça gets aged at a much lower uh, interval and it's a little Mm -hmm. bit less, but this is just for comparison's sake so people can have an idea of how much cachaça is produced and consumed in one calendar year. So again, Brazil produces one and a half billion liters of cachaça. And in comparison, bourbon only roughly produces, there's only 405 million with an M liters of bourbon produced each year. And in the US, we love bourbon. Mm -hmm. I drink plenty of bourbon. Yeah all the time. <laughs> um, and so that's just to give you an idea of how many, uh, of how many liters are produced a year and about half of that. Uh, so about 1 billion is of it is produced by large scale, uh, distilleries mm-hmm. that are more, they're regulated. They're, you know, t- like they're, the government has their eye on it, but the other half a billion are produced by small artisanal producers, some of which are mom and pop shops that just have like one still in their backyard or their farm. Um, and so that contributes to some, I've read an estimate one time that it was like, there are over a hundred thousand different brands of cachaça. Mm-hmm. And of course there's a lot of different popular ones. Like you have, um, you know, Leblanc, you have, uh, Pitou, you have, uh, one, a brand called 51. Um, but, one of the big issues with cachaça is that because a large portion of the production happens in mom and shop places, sometimes you don't get the highest quality spirit. Mm-hmm. And that can kind of be a little detrimental to the to the brand mm-hmm. or the love of cachaça because some people, they'll be like, their only experience will be like, oh, you know, we got this cachaça from a friend of a friend's family on their farm. And it's like kind of weird and kind of not great. And so there are a lot of people who, who they're even Brazilians. They have this like weird stigma against cachaça mm-hmm. um, because they've just, even though it's a Brazilian thing, they probably have never been introduced to like a really awesome version of it. Well, that's, so that sort of lends itself to my next question because with how much is produced and with it being the national drink of Brazil, like would you say that every family has a bottle of cachaça that they'll bring out on, you know, a, a weekend night when families get together? Or like you said, is there a bit of a stigma and maybe it's not quite as popular? I will say that it, because it's a pretty cheap spirit, most people do, most people do have a bottle at home. Mm-hmm. Um, Brazil has really crazy uh, protectionist laws around their economy. So you can't really import or export stuff mm-hmm. without having to pay a high tax. So usually if like uh, people, people go out in Brazil and they'll pay like crazy amount of money for like a bottle of vodka Mm -hmm. and it's like Mm -hmm. because it's imported it's it's foreign it's this this crazy thing but they have you know locally made cachaça that they don't really focus on but yes people do usually have a bottle because it's cheaper Mm -hmm. um they just don't love it as much as this foreign thing and so um i actually wanted to get into that eventually because brazilians against that same stigma where it's like they tend to uh, revere and really love foreign things mm-hmm. over things of their own. Um, and that will come into play when I, when I talk about the caipirinha in a little bit, mm-hmm. because it, it, it does make a difference. And, and it's, it's something that I, even though I'm not in Brazil and even though I've been far removed from living there, um, I, I still have guests who come into our restaurant and they don't like cachaça. And I'm like, 
that's interesting. And, and these are like Brazilian guests, other Brazilian immigrants who live who live in the area, but they're just yeah, no, I don't I don't like cachaça, I don't drink cachaça, and I'm like. Well, but you'll but you'll drink vodka and you'll drink you know yeah. these other things from other parts of the world, and so I try to make it my mission to educate and talk to people about our awesome national spirit, even if it, even if I'm not in my country, you know, oh, or yeah. outside of Brazil. And so, do you do you think that attitude is a byproduct of the taxation and the, everything that you were talking about? That it's kind of like when you were a kid, if your parents didn't let you have a certain sweet, that was the one sweet that you always wanted. It's just like it's kind of you know, you always want what you can't have. And if it's more challenging to get, I mean, I think you and I spoke on, on Instagram, we both hate vodka, but if vodka is like this out of reach thing, that might make you prefer it much more to something that is sold in every shop and it's really cheap and anyone can get it. I think that is exactly what it is. I think that it's because there's so such a big difficulty. Um, I do. I think it's a kind of a two-part answer. I think 100% it, it, it plays a big role in mm-hmm. it because I think it's that, it's that thing. It's like if it's out of reach, you're going to want it more. Mm-hmm. If you're told you can't have it, you're going to want it more. And it, it's also like price plays a role, right? If you go to a store and you see that a bottle of cachaça only costs you, you know, let's say the equivalent of like, ten dollars but you see a bottle of vodka costs a hundred dollars instinctively you may not you may not know what goes on inside the bottle but you're gonna think wow that vodka is premium yeah or that vodka is better you know and so i think that that plays a role with it um and then the other side of it is that it's that same thing that i said before is that even from its inception cachaça was almost seen as this lowbrow uh cheaper spirit because of its natural uh, connotations that have existed for over 500 years because mm-hmm. it started off as a, as a as an alternative to the European spirits and that eventually became so ingrained with the slave culture and for poor people and it's more of like a very rustic rural spirit mm-hmm. but that to me is what makes it more Brazilian it's what makes it more interesting it's what it's what I believe makes it a better spirit definitely no i agree that that makes a lot of sense so where so let's start talking about the capuina and and kind of where all of that history lends itself to the cocktail yeah so one of the things that fascinated me about your show was about the fact that every episode was about a specific cocktail recipe Mm -hmm. and in the middle of covid and with everything that i've been going through with the restaurant industry and everything that all of us have been going through with COVID, um, everybody, everybody that I've speak, spoken to has, has had some difficulty, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I kept thinking about the Caipirinha and it kept popping up in my mind. And the history of the Caipirinha is directly tied to the last major pandemic that the world experienced. Um, of course, I, I want to put a caveat in there because there's a lot of different legends and stories of where it came from, but the most well-accepted one uh, across Brazil and across most people who, who who talk about this is that the Caipirinha was developed as a uh, quote-unquote remedy for the 1918 Spanish flu. So the story kind of goes, the legend kind of goes that um, you know, back in 1918, and this actually kind of lends itself across the board on, uh, in the spirit world as well. Uh, alcohol has always kind of, at least in the early days was always kind of viewed somewhat like a medicinal kind of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody knows the history of bitters, they were invented, uh, almost like an herbal remedy mm-hmm. and alcohol is something great to put other flavors into because it'll impart those flavors. It won't go bad. And you kind of have it on a shelf for a really long time. And so throughout the world, in the early 1900s uh, and late 1800s, even early 1800s as well, they had 
a lot of like doctors who would, you know, they would give you alcohol mm-hmm. as a prescription, the same way that doctors used to prescribe cocaine. Like, you know, it was mm-hmm. just these crazy things that just that they did. Um, and so in 1918, in, in during the middle of the Spanish flu, the Caipirinha was born. It was basically in the rural slash countryside part of the state of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, these rural farmers, they went to their local doctor and the local doctor apparently started putting together cachaça, honey, lime, and garlic. And it was this like natural remedy. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, uh, Now, I don't know if it worked. I don't know if it got rid of Spanish flu, but I'm sure more and more patients went back to this doctor asking for it because mm-hmm. they probably thought it was delicious. Somewhere along the line, someone got rid of the garlic and subbed the honey out for just plain old sugar because mm-hmm. it was easier to to find you know because it, because of the long prevalence of of sugar making in brazil and in latin america sugar is everywhere mm-hmm. you know it's in every single thing it's easy to get and so everybody had sugar and the caipirinha got reduced down to just cachaça sugar and lime three easy to access cheap ingredients mm-hmm. and i believe that that's one of the biggest reasons why the caipirinha exploded um, but for context, this would be like if, if, you know, you went to your doctor today in the middle of COVID and you're like, hey, doc, I have COVID. And he goes, OK, cool. Here's a prescription. You're going to go and grab cachaça, honey, lime and garlic. And you're going to drink that and you'll be fine. Like that's kind of like it, yeah. it's crazy to think about it in 2020. But that's what happened, um, at least according to a lot of people. But it's it's a fascinating uh, little thing. That's so but interesting. And where it went from there is that that was in the early 1900s, right? And so because of the, the simplicity of the recipe that then became the caipirinha, which is cachaça, uh, lime, and sugar, it exploded because it, anybody could make it. Yeah. Anybody who had a bottle of cachaça, like I said, the prevalence of cachaça was everywhere, even mm-hmm. if it was cheap, even if it was bad. And cocktails, are, they, the reoccurring thing throughout cocktail history is that they came about to make bad spirits taste good. Mm -hmm. So because a lot of people had really shitty cachaça and a lot of people, you know, they wanted to drink something and we've always wanted to drink, it then became a really great way to mask the flavors of a not so great cachaça and that exploded. And then a lot of people really started to attribute the, uh, explosion in popularity of the caipirinha to a hotel in Sao Paulo in the 1950s where their bartender had seen where, uh, and again, remembering that the caipirinha was always seen as kind of lowbrow as well mm-hmm. because cachaça is seen as lowbrow. So this bartender in the 1950s at this really high, high-end, fancy, prestigious hotel in Sao Paulo was like, well, you know what? Like over at all the beaches in Sao Paulo, they're, they're serving caipirinha on the beaches and people love it. So he goes, well, why don't we make one for our bar here? Why mm-hmm. don't we start to sell the caipirinha at the, at the fancy bar? And so then the business travelers who would come to Sao Paulo, which is one of the largest, it, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the largest, if not the largest, south, uh, the largest city in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So it experienced a lot of income, influx and outflux of travelers. And they would have a caipirinha at this hotel and then they would take it across the world and across Brazil. And it really exploded from there. Yeah, that... It is. It's a good point. It is such a good drink to have on a beach, to be fair. So I can see how that's <laughs> that they would have seen that as like, oh, everyone's loving it. We should start selling it. No, it is. It, it's funny. I, I actually really should have asked um, my grandfather before we recorded this to tell me the story again. My grandpa always used to tell the story when we were younger 
um, because he used to travel loads for work um, all over the world, like Australia, Paris, Japan. Um, and at one point he went to South America. I don't know if he went, if he was in Brazil. He might he might have been. He might have mm-hmm. been in Sao Paulo. But yeah. I know he was in South America. And um, he went to a bar. And the bartender said, I'm going to make you this drink. Um, and this is probably in the 60s or 70s. Um, and he said, I'm going to make you this drink. And if you only drink this all night, you can't drink anything else. You will not be hungover tomorrow. And my grandpa was, of course, like... I'll test that. <laughs> and he said, he said he only drank caprinas and he said, yeah, next day he felt fresh as a daisy. Um, I don't know if that was just because, you know, he has a great tolerance or something. Um, but I remember, uh, when we were, when I was probably a, a teenager, he got his hands on a bottle of cachaça and he was like, if I make you this drink, he's like, if, if you only drink this, you won't be hung over the next day. And that always stuck with me. Um, I don't really know if there's any truth to that. I feel like you'll be hung over from it. I feel like I get hung over from anything these days, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I loved that. I thought that was a funny story. Hey, I've, I've, I've tested that theory out and I will say I have been hung over a couple of times, mm-hmm. but if you're using a quality spirit, it, it doesn't impact you the way that, you know, if you were, if you use like a crappy made yeah. spirit, like the, the better made spirit, the, the less of a hangover you're going to get. And it's good to th- mix in a water too, you know, oh, just, yeah. to, just definitely. to make sure. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can see, I can definitely see how it would be less of a hangover inducing drink because it's a clear spirit. And, you know, those tend to be a bit, give you a bit less of a headache than like a dark rum or something like that. But um, right. yeah. So with all of that being said, I can definitely see how it was thought of as, you know, medicinal back in the day, because it would probably just heal some of people's woes, whether that was the plague yeah. or who knows what. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it's it, maybe it didn't cure Spanish flu, but it might have cured boredom and yeah. it might have created some really great nights. So yeah. I'm sure there was plenty of people clamoring for that prescription as well. Oh, definitely. Um, but yeah, and I mean, then the then Caipirinha kind of went and evolved and eventually uh, the vodka market in Brazil and in the world was like, well, we, we need to sell more vodka in Brazil. And they're like, what do we do? They're like, well, people seem to love this Caipirinha thing. And so they're like, well, what if we just start advertising? for people to make caipirinhas with vodka. And, you know, this is kind of going back into play with what I was mentioning before about how, you know, these foreign spirits are always seen as, you know, higher class Mm -hmm. in Brazil. All of a sudden that took off like wildfire. People stopped ordering regular caipirinhas with regular cachaça and they started ordering what then became known as a caipirosca, which is just Mm. a caipirinha made with vodka. But that isn't a real caipirinha. And you and I, I'm sure, will both attest to that's a terrible idea because vodka is disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, out of any spirit you can possibly drink, the fact that you choose vodka, it, it, I just I can't get behind that. Yeah. I can't. Um, you know, by definition, a vodka is something that is flavorless and colorless. And what's the point of drinking a spirit that doesn't have a fun story or a fun flavor? Yeah. It's just, yeah. you know, it's easier to drink, sure. But, you know, to this day, it's 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 again, it's that thing where you have a lot of Brazilian people, even the folks who come to our bar that they're like, no, no, I don't drink regular caipirinhas. Can you ask the bartender to make me one with vodka? And it's like, well, we use quality cachaça and I spend so much time on it. And of course we do it, but it's also like with the, with a pang of, of, of pain. Yeah. When we do yeah. It. But, no, that is, um, that is painful. And I, I completely agree. I will never understand that. And I think you and I spoke about this as well, but like the, the only drink that I vodka drink that I used to really love was Moscow mules. And then I discovered that it's actually better with other spirits anyway. Um, you know, they're like tequila, there are plenty of other spirits that actually go better with ginger beer and lime juice than, than vodka. So 
yeah. Oh, yeah. I would never and, ruin and, a Caipirinha with vodka. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that when we were chatting over Instagram, I mentioned to you, I was like, the, the Peruvians have actually, they've had a cocktail for over a hundred years now called the Chilcano. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a Moscow mule with Pisco, which uh, Pisco is a, sorry to go off into other mm-hmm. cocktails, just because we're on the conversation. <laughs> uh, Pisco is a, essentially it's a brandy made in Peru um, with very specific kind of grapes. And so uh, they distilled the grape wine and they make this brandy. And so even that is something that they then, add ginger and lime to and it's way more delicious than a regular moscow mule because you get the 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 pisco itself is very light or uh, floral and a little earthy so on top and the ginger has that bite and the lime juice has the crispness and so that really lends itself to a, a amazingly refreshing cocktail that uses a really quality spirit um that you know is made from high quality because technically because vodka can be made with almost anything most producers tend to use really low quality stuff. Yeah, and absolutely. so there's some, and they and they're like, oh, like distilled thirteen times, and you're like, yeah, because you're using bad stuff. You need to distill <laughs> no, it thirteen times. It's not or else really no something to brag it. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And somehow it became marketed that way. Mm-hmm. But you know, Kentucky mules add add, add oh, you know yeah. whiskey, ginger beer, and lime. Even better. There's so many better options yeah. than drinking vodka. Yeah. No, I, I had one with gin um, a couple months ago, and and that was fantastic as well. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it, gin's a perfect example. You take you know the base of vodka, but then you add botanicals, and you know you just give it some personality. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I'm. I. I Pretty much every episode, it somehow comes up how much I hate vodka, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to back down on it anytime soon. Well, hey, that that makes me happy. That makes me like this show even more because if every episode we're bashing vodka, I, I'm in. I'm in. I'll listen to every episode. Oh, I love it. I love to hear that. But yeah, so what is your what is your perfect caipirinha? So this is kind of funny because there is actually a law in Brazil that dictates what a caipirinha can and cannot be. Because for a long time, it was just kind of word of mouth. And it took a long time for the caipirinha to actually be introduced into the IBA, which is the International Bartenders Association's list of like official cocktails Mm -hmm. around the world. It's essentially a list that defines a a cocktail recipe mm-hmm. as this is legit this is the uh, the only way that this can be made for it to be that specific uh cocktail there's you know there's a bunch of other ones like the old fashions in there uh manhattans are in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh there's it's a pretty long list but the caipirinha for it to get introduced uh brazil as a country kind of needed to decide what it was because because the template for a caipirinha is so simple cachaça lime and sugar. And if you kind of break that down, you have granulated sugar, uh, cut up pieces of limes and cachaça. People started to bastardize it. They mm-hmm. started to add whatever fruit that they could. You know, there's some people who make it with kiwi, strawberries, pineapple, and they're all cool variations. But for a really long time, no one had this like de- defined thing of what is a caipirinha. Mm-hmm. So in, I think, I believe 2003, 2002, the president of Brazil had to pass a law that states wow. that a caipirinha is cachaça sugar and lime. And so the traditional way to make a caipirinha is you take a low ball, you grab uh, half of a lime. So you cut a lime in half and then you cut that into fourths. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have small, uh, you have like four cubes or four slices and you're going to put that at the, uh, you're going to put that at the bottom of your rocks glass. You're going to add about a tablespoon of granulated sugar and you're going to muddle 
the the lime into that sugar to disperse the lime juice from the sugar mm-hmm. cubes or wedges. And you're going to get some of the oils from the peels and you're going to mix that up, make a little bit of a paste. And then you're going to add cachaça, ice, and you're just going to mix it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. That is the traditional way to make a caipirinha. And that's probably the way you're going to see most people make caipirinhas everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that I make it at the restaurant for all of our guests, and it's by far our best-selling cocktail, is like to give you an idea, I probably sell 10 times more caipirinhas than any of my original cocktails that I put on the menu. Mm-hmm. That's just the power of, of, of this cocktail. So the way that I do it and the way that I find to be a little bit more balanced because granulated sugar doesn't dissolve in alcohol and it doesn't always dissolve 100% in juice on its own. So the way that I like to make a caipirinha is with the standard kind of sour template. Mm-hmm. So what I do is instead of using granulated sugar and muddled limes, I like to do an ounce and a half of, of, of a clean, good tasting uh, white, uh, silver cachaça. Mm-hmm. I don't use aged cachaça because aged cachaça has different notes imparted on it by wood that, I, in my opinion, just doesn't lend itself to a good um, caipirinha, the same way that it, you might, you have a lot of people tell you that you shouldn't really use like an Añejo tequila mm-hmm. in a margarita, you know? So it's a similar kind of idea. Of course, that's up to debate. And if you like it, make whatever you want. It's really about what mm-hmm. you like. But um, I tend to stick to silver cachaças when it comes to caipirinha. So I'll use an ounce and a half of, of a, a nice, good, clean tasting uh, silver cachaça. I'll do three quarters of an ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice. Um, and I'll do three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. Now, uh, some people will call me crazy and tell me it's sacrilegious and that this isn't really a caipirinha because a caipirinha needs muddled, uh, muddled lime. So the way I get around it is I take one small lime cube. I muddle that at the bottom of my glass with nothing in it. Mm -hmm. And then in a shaker, I will shake that cocktail, um, with ice because I think that it really needs to be incorporated. Mm -hmm. And then I'll pour that over the one muddled lime cube just so that I can hit the, you know, uh, all the boxes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) And the reason for that is that I believe that the caipirinha, if done in that way is easier to drink. It doesn't have granulated pieces of sugar. Mm -hmm. It's not too tart. It's not too boozy. It's perfectly balanced. Anybody can enjoy it. Um, Because what you find is uh, the traditional way is good. It's great. It's fantastic. But I also believe that that's one of the reasons why it contributes to some people not liking cachaça and caipirinhas mm-hmm. themselves because the spirit, if not well-made, can be harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you do need to mask it a little bit. Not If you use good spirits, not really. But if unfortunately, because a large, a good portion of all of the cachaça made doesn't, isn't necessarily the best. Um, not saying that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a majority, but like I'm saying, like what, what is available to a lot of people isn't always the best. Uh, I think that by doing it with fresh lime juice and simple syrup, you kind of take away the things that will make the drink not as good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your limes are old and they're not, you know, and you don't have the greatest limes, if you have freshly squeezed lime juice, you're, you don't have to worry about that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of if some people, I'm not sure if anyone, if a lot of people know this, but you know, limes, the the peels, they're bitter. Mm-hmm. So like the pith is bitter, yeah. and and that can lend itself to a bitter uh, aspect to the drink, which some people don't like. So by avoiding that and just using fresh squeezed lime juice, you don't have to incorporate, you don't have to deal with any of that bitterness. And then uh, 
the whole simple syrup thing is that because it's already a syrup, you don't have to worry about the sugar dissolving. Mm -hmm. So then you don't have to worry about, well, is the first sip going to taste the same as the last sip? And um, I was listening to your episode with Leandro and he was talking about the old fashioned, how he prefers it to be grainy. And I'm with him. Mm -hmm. I prefer my old fashions to be grainy, but that's because I love bourbon or, you know, whatever whiskey you want to use, if it's rye, whatever, if it's an aged whiskey, I love that as even on its own. Mm -hmm. So if there's a little bit of granulated sugar in there, I don't mind. And now I might not drink silver cachaça on its own. I would sip Mm -hmm. an aged cachaça Mm -hmm. uh, on its own, but the silver one, I, I, I wouldn't want that graininess in there. Yeah. And so that's the way I use it. No, I think, I think that's really interesting. Cause yeah, I, d- I did, um, enjoy when Leandro touched on that in the old fashioned episode, but I think that is a good point, especially if you're making drinks for other people, you know, for example, like my sister's 21 and has the palate of a 21 year old. I don't mean that as an insult, but you know, I, I didn't, it's not like I was drinking a lot of good stuff when I was 21. Right. If I were to oh, make her, sure. yeah. If I were to make her a Caprina, I I would want it to be, I think, balanced, like you said, and mixed in because if she got a huge sip of cachaça and then later on it was like this sugar bomb mixed with lime, she'd probably never want to drink it again. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I think I think it's really interesting that you say that, but I think it's uh, it's important to to note that kind of crowd-pleasing element, the fact that you want you want other people <laughs> to enjoy it um, and not necessarily people who have trained, you know, their palates to enjoy things like that. But so would you, are there any cocktails that you would ever make with aged cachaça or would you say that's just more of a sipping drink on its own? Oh no. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's like internationally recognized to the level of, of actually there's one that I would say that you can use in aged cachaça. Uh, and it fits right in. They're they're currently trying to get it introduced into the IBA. It's called a habujigalu, which is just a literal translation of cocktail. Habu mm-hmm. meaning tail, galu meaning you know rooster. Mm-hmm. So it's a habujigalu, and it was created in the south of Brazil. And the version that they're trying to get introduced is uh, three ingredients, equal parts. Uh, Cachaça, you could definitely use an aged cachaça. I've used an aged cachaça mm-hmm. in this, and I really, really love it. I would do aged cachaça, sweet vermouth, and chinar, which is an interesting mm-hmm. choice because chinar is an artichoke-based amaro or aperitif, but it doesn't taste really like artichokes. Mm-hmm. It's just a good amaro. Um, it's a really good boozy cachaça cocktail that you can make with aged cachaça. Um, I also, I, I have, you know, my own spirit list for, or my own cocktail list at the bar. I'm trying to develop really cool uh, aged cachaça cocktails. Like there's one that is going on the next menu that I basically take, took like a, a tiki template where I'm mm-hmm. splitting the base between two different aged cachaças and then going to try to make my own little riff on a, on a tiki based cocktail. Um, and it's funny. I mean, the, the cocktailing world that we know of it in, in the States is only just kind of starting in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have the benefit of prior to prohibition, the US being, you know, not the center, but one of the largest Definitely. contributors to the cocktail culture. Mm-hmm. And then prohibition happened and ruined everything for everyone. And then, you know, it's kind of been revived over the last 30 years. But this is kind of making the 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 theory, the the mixology, for lack of a better word, because I hate that word, and 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 the the these theory things are kind of just making their way to South America on a more larger Mm -hmm. scale. And so I believe there's going to be some fantastic, awesome cocktails that are going to be made in the next couple of years. Um, 
But I would say that the Habujigalu is another classic one that is that that a lot of people are trying to get it introduced into the IBA that does use aged cachaça. That sounds fantastic. I'd love to try one of those. It's really good. It's nice and bitter. It has the crispness from the cachaça. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really good, really good, um, really good cocktail. Yeah. No, that does that does sound really good. And it's interesting what you're saying about the the cocktail boom kind of just starting over in Brazil. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, and not just in the drinks world, but I think with food and everything else, is this pandemic has really forced all of us to get back to basics because if you can't travel or if your resources are really limited because of, you know, you can't do your job and the, these things that have basically affected everyone. We all just kind of have to go back to what we have and, you know, what's easily acceptable, um, uh, not acceptable, accessible, <laughs> but acceptable as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope that what that does in Brazil is is put a focus on cachaça and, you know, not vodka and stuff that that's kind of, you know, a novelty or, you know, exotic or things like that, but actually just making really cool cocktails with the national you know, spirit of Brazil. It'd be cool to see what comes out of that. Oh yeah. No, there are, there are a lot of institutions and I, and I don't want to make it sound like no one cares. Like there's a lot of like institutions in Brazil that are really focusing on cachaça as a, as a staple of Brazilian mm-hmm. culture, making it a, a, a really big, important part of the cultural aspect. There's, you know, the name is escaping me, but there's an entire organization of people who their sole job is to talk about cachaça and to be advocates for cachaça. And they, there's another couple of people who rank all of the cachaça that gets made every year as a way to continue to drum up. (laughs) Oh my God. I I think about that all the time. I'm like, if I could do that, it's way better. Um, And so, and there's, there's a bunch of people who um, there's this whole, uh, I discovered their website and it's an organization that's solely dedicated to the history of Cachaça. They have published books, they have online, uh, blog posts about all of this and they go super in depth. And so I think that one of the reasons why it's taken Brazil so long to get behind the, the whole cocktail making boom is that again, it's the availability of, of spirits that we all kind of call for in classic recipes, mm-hmm. you know, in the States, these classic recipes, almost all of the spirits are relatively easily accessible. Yeah. But because South America as a whole, a lot of them have protectionist laws about importing things. They end up being super expensive. Yeah. So if you're trying to open a restaurant, you you can't. You know, for me, like I can just go buy a couple of cheaper bottles and, and they're not super expensive for me. I can have almost a whole collection of things that I can make almost any and all classic mm-hmm. cocktails with. For relatively inexpensively, but mm-hmm. that's not the case in in South America and specifically Brazil, um, especially because some of these they're they're all they all have their own you know designation of origin, and you can't have them be made in Brazil, so you have to have them imported, yeah. and it's much more expensive. So hopefully that changes, and hopefully people uh, start to really take take it seriously and enjoy it. Yeah. No, it's exciting. That's very exciting. I look forward to eventually being able to visit Brazil myself when <laughs> the world reopens, but. Yeah, that's um, that's all really cool. Uh, super random question, but in terms sure. like culturally in Brazil, is do people drink the caipirinha at any specific like before a meal, after a meal, like during the day, after work? Is there any sort of like timing, or is it just kind of whenever people feel like drinking one? So the most popular drink in Brazil is beer by far. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what gets drank almost everywhere mm-hmm. as like a, on a national basis. Um, Usually you, you'll, you know, some people like will sit at small little roadside bars and just chew cachaça as well in between rounds of beer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the caipirinha is, is, 
I don't want to call it like celebratory, but mm-hmm. it's like usually broken out when you're having a party, you're having friends over, you're at the beach. Mm-hmm. It's more of a, a festive occasion. And that's when the caipirinha gets drank. Like um, you can order it at a restaurant. You can order it, you know, people will make some at a, like birthday parties and, 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 and weddings and things like that. It's more of a celebratory uh, cocktail. Um, than, than, you know, like a typical drinker, yeah, you know, like some people sense. go out for capirinhas every day. Mm-hmm. That's it's a, it's a small percentage, but most people will go out in Brazil. And, and, uh, one thing that I love about Brazilian drinking culture is that here in the States and in a lot of places in the world, draft beer is kind of the norm mm-hmm. in every bar, right? Like just, you know, get me a pint of this or whatever in, in Brazil, because that's very expensive equipment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of places like there's a big wealth disparity, uh, inequality in Brazil. Um, so most people who are of the, you know, working class, most of those bars, they, they don't even, they've never even seen a draft beer system. Wow. So what they do is, uh, actually I have one. So let me just run behind the bar. Just for, <laughs> sorry, one no, second. Go for for, it. Sorry. So this will be more for folks who watch this, but uh, I'm going to describe it as well. Um, <laughs> basically, because there's no draft beer, what they do is most places will have these big, like they call them like 600 milliliter bottles, mm-hmm. like they're big boys. Um, and they, they'll put them in these sleeves that keep it cold because Brazil is a very hot country. Mm-hmm. It's a you know tropical country. And so most places will just they'll serve these beers. And the idea is that you don't order one for yourself. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you order one for your table and you share it with these smaller, uh, they're like essentially like half the size of like a coffee mug. Yeah. Like they're tiny little uh, sharing cups. And the idea is that you'll sit down with a couple friends and you'll just share this big bottle of beer um, amongst friends. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's more economical. It's more community-based. So the thing about Brazilian food and culture that I, that I love and something that I really, really always, I never realized how important it was until I got older and got into the, the food industry as a profession mm-hmm. is how communal the idea of eating and drinking is in Brazil. And so, you know, it's, it's super important that like you, you sit down, you know, a father, a son, a couple cousins, you know, friends, they'll just sit at a, at a small little bar. They'll order a couple of these big boys and they'll just share them. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. Like you don't, you don't go, Oh, well today I'm going to drink this and they'll drink that. It's like, no, no. What are we having? Yeah. What are I we like going to drink? Yeah. So it's something that I, I find very, very fascinating. Yeah. That's really cool. Now I think, I think that's something that, that other cultures could learn from a bit. Cause I, I agree. I mean, I like, you know, I love, I guess you go and you order a bottle of wine that everyone will share and things like that. But, um, there are so many times where you'll go out with people and everyone's ordering, you know, different things. And it does, it does feel, it's just less of that community feel, but I like, it's nice if you, um, if you go out and you can still kind of feel like you're all just gathered around a kitchen table somewhere. And that's, that's a nice way of going about things. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on this week. That was super interesting. I feel like I learned a lot. Is there? A, well, first of all, you've got your YouTube channel, so tell everyone where they can um, where they can find you and watch some of your videos. Yeah. So if you just type into YouTube, uh, Louis L U I uh, Fernandes F E R N A N D S, should I should pop up? I hope. Um, and then you could also find me on Instagram at Louis Fern L U I F E R N. And yeah, I mean, I post videos every week. I try to, I try to, it's very difficult when you also run a restaurant, uh, but I try to do it every single week. I'm really trying to build and and cultivate a community and talk about cool stuff. Um, 
But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a blast. Oh, and yeah, I actually no. had a question for you. Oh. I mean, how how prevalent is it? Because you're you're in London, correct? Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. Yeah. So how I, I've heard, and I could be wrong, that there's a lot of um, Brazilian people living in London and the UK specifically. So my question to you is, how often do you see cachaça out? Or do you see cachaça when you go out? Is it is are caipirinhas on menus? Um, they they definitely are. They definitely are. I mean, there's a few really good, just full on Brazilian restaurants kind of throughout. Well, more than a few. There's loads, but like there's a few that I've definitely been to. Um, and then of course they'll have them there. And then I'd say yeah, like I think we have a tiki bar across the road, and I think they actually have a caipirinha on the menu. Oh, nice. um, even though you know, I guess it's not really a tiki drink, but it kind of fits in with the vibe. Um, so it's funny that you say that. There's a couple of books that I have that list the caipirinha as a tiki cocktail, and I had to have this conversation conversation with myself I'm like is it I think like I think it it like I think the argument that I would make because I'm obsessed with tiki culture that that is kind of my little niche um Mm -hmm. I think it a hundred percent like fits in like it stands up with those drinks but I don't really think in the sense that like it wasn't like a Trader Vic's like people in the 60s and 70s I don't think they were going to those tiki lounges drinking them but um I think that was probably more because I don't think cachaça was as easy to get back then um so yeah no um but no it's there's a huge prevalence of um of Brazilians in London. Um, there's some really great restaurants actually funnily enough, cause I have a lot of Irish friends here and apparently I didn't realize that Dublin has like the, I think the biggest population of Brazilians outside of like Brazil itself. Um, so I have a lot of friends, like Irish friends who are also like their parents are Brazilian and, um, mm. it's fun. Yeah. I, I never expected when I moved to the UK to get, you know, exposed to Brazilian food, but I love it. <laughs> it's great. It's so funny that you mentioned that. So my girlfriend, her, her grandma, father was born in Ireland and her mother was born in London and she went to the uh, she went to Dublin I think two years ago and she said the same thing she's like I would never expected you know to run into like a Brazilian restaurant in Dublin and she goes it was some of the best food I've ever had and she had no clue that that there were so many Brazilian people in Dublin and so after she told me that I started to look into I'm like that's interesting like Dublin that's an interesting choice but makes sense yeah no it's great I I have a friend too you know, I mean, he, he looks so Irish. His name is Killian. Um, you know, he, like he, you know, he just looks, you know, exactly what you picture when you picture an Irish guy. Um, but his mom is, is Brazilian. And he, I mean, I just remember one of the first times I was talking to him and then he can't remember how it came up. All of a sudden he was just speaking like fluent Portuguese, like just, you know, like perfectly. And I was like, Oh my God. Well, and he was like, Oh yeah, I'm half Brazilian. I was like, that's crazy. Um, so so yeah, no, it's a, it's a really, it's something I never would have expected, but it's really cool. So yeah, you'll definitely um if you come over to london at any point you'll have some cool cool places to try for sure oh absolutely but yeah thank you um thank you so much for coming on everyone make sure to check out Louis. oh i was gonna say when you're mentioning your videos are awesome i really really oh, like thank them you. um I appreciate it. yeah and i i know because i'm not nearly the production value of, of yours but i do make those you know thirsty thursday videos every thursday and i it is like it's it's a lot of work goes into those videos it's tough <laughs> it does yeah it's, um, you know, I mean, for me, like one of the primary issues, uh, apart from the fact that I have like a nine to five job and, and all of mm-hmm. that is like making those videos every week. I'm not the sort of person who 
well, I'm like, okay, I have to make a video. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to drink tonight or I've gotten, you know, an early meeting tomorrow. I don't want to have a drink before. So I'm just going to make this and, you know, I don't know, bin it or what, like I'm, I refuse to do that. Like if I'm making a drink, I'm going to sit down afterwards and drink that drink. So the weeks where I'm like, oh, I don't really feel like drinking in the middle of the week. It's hard to get those videos out. It is. It's just something that you don't think about before you start making them. So Right. I mean, I, I will batch make them. I'll make like, I'll record four yeah, in a day. That's a and good way sometimes, of doing it. Yeah, it is until you're drunk at three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon on a Monday because you've drank four cocktails. Yeah. Like you, I look at a well-made cocktail and I'm like, as, as someone who respects this art and as someone who loves the art of making a cocktail, I can't in good conscience no. make a cocktail and then go, nah, I'm going to toss it. Yeah. So there have been a there have been a couple Mondays where I'm like it's three o'clock and I should I should probably just go home now. Yeah, I should just I should yeah. Oh yeah, no, I I totally feel you, but I I have a lot more respect for being a bit tipsy at three p.m. on a Monday than like wasting really nice cachaça. You know, like it's just it's, and I mean for me it's like it's my home bar, so I go to a lot of trouble to kind of curate the spirits that I have. I'm certainly not gonna just dump them down the drain or only drink half of them or right. something. But yeah, it becomes right. a challenge. But um, for sure. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. Hope you'll come back again as as soon as you'd oh, like. Oh, of course. And anytime, anytime. You're, you're always welcome back. But yes, thank you, Louie. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure was all mine. <laughs>